0: You uh, said something, Lord Jesus, in, in John 15, that we tend to forget, but whenever we hear it, it puts everything in the perspective. When you said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We oftentimes think that on our own, we can do certain things, and it is true that you have given us Uh, You've given us health. You've given us sound minds. You've given us gifts, different gifts. You've given us aptitudes. You've given us the ability to reason and to think and to handle abstract concepts and to do mathematics and all this kind of stuff. And oftentimes we will experience some modicum of success. We will um, have some type of achievement And if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that we're the ones that uh, are responsible for all of that well-being and for the accolades of men. But you have ways of reminding us and showing us when we get too full of ourselves that apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot breathe apart from you. We cannot think. We cannot move our bodies without grace and mercy. We can't do anything. We can't stop death. We can't stop disease. We cannot stop natural disasters, as we call them. When it gets right down to it, There's quite a bit we cannot do. We want to acknowledge here in the middle of our week that apart from you, we can do nothing. And the things that we have been able to do and the things we've been able to use our gifts in accomplishing certain things, we take a moment and stop and say thank you for giving us those gifts and those abilities. Thank you for work. Thank you for employment. Thank you for income. Thank you for provision. Thank you for health. We also thank you that uh, not only are you involved in our lives, but you're involved in the whole world and the whole universe. And as we look around and we are mindful of the chaos, we are mindful of the, um, the spirit of Antichrist that is moving rapidly around the world, We see it, we see the signs of Luke 21 and Matthew 24. And we are mindful that there is a tumultuous spirit in the world. We are mindful that things are getting not better and better, but things are getting worse and worse, as Chuck alluded to on Sunday. And in the middle of that, we remain calm because you're in absolute control and you're in absolute charge. Your throne is in the heavens. Your sovereignty rules over all. That gives us great peace. It calms us at night when we wonder about our income, when we wonder about deals we've got on the table and whether or not they're gonna work or whether or not they're gonna come through. Or we wonder about this provision or what happens if this doesn't happen. Or These things all get connected. We get anxious and we get worried and we get concerned. But we've got to take a step back because you said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will return and gather you unto my own. Now, that's the truth. You're running the whole world. You're running history. You're running the nations. It all looks so chaotic, but it's absolutely absolutely on schedule to the millisecond. And we are living in these times and your eye is upon us. You promised to provide, to sustain, to take care. We don't always get your timing but we don't have to get it. We just know that you're there. We pray tonight that you will encourage us. We pray that you once again give us perspective. Uh, Whenever we open our Bibles, we get recalibrated. We get readjusted to what's true, to what's right, what's holy, what's pure. We get recalibrated to the facts of the world. Uh, We are constantly being deceived. We are constantly seeing truth distorted. We are constantly seeing and hearing half-truths. But you are truth, and your word is truth. Square us away tonight. Calm our hearts. Stabilize us. No matter how difficult the storm. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. Always have been, always will be. That's why you say over 200 times, fear not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're on your way to Ephesians 6, without question uh, you're familiar with the story of Teddy Roosevelt leading the charge up San Juan Hill, but not as many people are as familiar with the other story about Teddy Roosevelt as he led the assault uh, at Normandy. Now, I'm not speaking about President Teddy Roosevelt, I'm speaking about his son. Teddy Roosevelt had a son, who was named after him, who was a highly decorated war hero. Doesn't get the press, doesn't get the uh, publicity, hasn't had the focus on his life that his father had, but uh, he was a great man, and he was a great patriot. He was a great warrior. I quote from one scholar. Speaking of Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., he says he was born with American blood coursing through his veins. He was the son of President Theodore Roosevelt. He was known as Ted, and his course resembled his father's in many ways. But in one way, he was destined to be much more than the son of a president. He was destined for greatness. He was never afraid to defend his country in times of war. He fought in both World War I and World War II, he was a heroic soldier and received the Distinguished Service Cross and Silver Star as a result of his heroism in World War I. Although he showed great courage in time of action, it would be nothing compared to his efforts and actions on the beaches of Normandy. In February of 1944, Roosevelt was assigned to England to help lead the Normandy invasion. Roosevelt requested, now he was a Brigadier General, catch this. Roosevelt requested to be one of the first to land with the assault on Normandy. He wrote a petition to Major General Barton requesting that he be sent. And here is an excerpt from the letter that he wrote. The force and skill in which the first elements hit the beach and proceed may determine the ultimate success of the operation. With troops engaged for the first time, the behavior pattern of all is apt to be set by those very first engagements. It is considered that accurate information of the existing situation should be available for each succeeding element as they land. You should have, when you get to shore, an overall picture in which you can place confidence. I believe I can contribute materially on all of the above by going in with the assault companies. Furthermore, I personally know both officers and men of these advanced units and believe that it will steady them to know that I am with them. Here is a man who uh, was crippled with arthritis, who walked with a cane, who had uh, ongoing bouts with angina, uh, a hero in the previous war, but he wants to go in first. He's making a request. They approved it. General Barton approved, but with much hesitation. He was later noted for saying that he did not expect Roosevelt to return alive. Roosevelt was assigned to the U.S. 4th Infantry Division with an approved request to land first with the rest of the company. And you remember, you've seen seen footage of those guys hitting Normandy. Those landing crafts coming up there and those ramps dropping and those guys coming out. Just absolute chaos. He would be the only general on D-Day to land by sea with the first wave of troops. Roosevelt was one of the first off the landing craft, along with Captain Leonard T. Schroeder, Jr. Upon landing, now catch this, Roosevelt was informed that the landing craft had drifted more than a mile south of their objective. Thus, the first wave of men was off course by at least a mile. Armed with only a pistol... And walking with a cane due to his arthritis <laughs> Roosevelt, with perseverance in his eyes, didn't let the off-course hindrance stop him from what he came to do. He walked down the beach, back and forth, made a reconnaissance of the area to the rear of the beach to locate the causeways that were to be used for the advance. He then returned to the landing point to contact the two battalion commanders, at which time all parties coordinated the attack on the enemy positions that were soon starting to surface. You can imagine those German soldiers up there going, who, seeing this guy out there. Well, who, who is this guy? What is he, walking his dog? Where's his dog? at which time all parties coordinated the attack on the enemy positions that were soon starting to service. Roosevelt infamously said, we'll start the war from right here. Although spontaneous, the plan worked with little confusion or disarray. Roosevelt calmed the nerves of the frantic company as they landed on the beach, telling jokes and reciting poetry. Roosevelt stayed cool and collected therefore reassuring the regiment of young men, working much like a traffic cop as the landing crafts would come in. Ted Roosevelt pointed each regiment to their newest objective. As he dodged bullets and directed traffic with his cane, a landing craft would come in, they would see him, he would point them this way the next one would come in he would point them this way as he dodged bullets see unscrambled traffic jams of trucks and tanks all struggling to make their way up the beach inland general ormar bradley was once asked what he felt was the most heroic action he had ever seen in combat without hesitation bradley responded Ted Roosevelt on Utah Beach. Tragically, Roosevelt died one month after D-Day of a heart attack. He was, uh, I want to say 50s, yeah, somewhere in that range, yeah. And he was awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Now, why do I bring him up as we are making our way into Ephesians 6? I'll tell you why I do. There is a phrase in Ephesians 6. If you're with us for the first time, we're working our way through Ephesians 6 10 through 20, the section on spiritual warfare. And uh, I, I, as I said last week, we're moving about a quarter of an inch a week, but we're moving. Uh, I'm backing up one verse tonight. We made some headway, but we're retreating tonight. <laughs> then we'll push ahead. Uh, we're, we're actually going to, anyway, we're just moving around a little bit. You got to do that in warfare, you know? It is war, isn't it? Let's start with 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. And don't forget this, guys. When you see what's going on in the world, understand that there is a satanic element behind it. Just know that. What we're seeing is quote unquote, holy war. John Bunyan wrote a book, not only called Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote one called Holy War. Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. Isn't it interesting that just in the last few weeks, among everything else that was going on, we forgot that four Americans, were shot and killed by Islamic pirates. Well, that's what Thomas Jefferson was dealing with. Uh, same war, same concept. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Why is Israel being surrounded? <laughs> hey man, it's it's all in the word of God. Why is the United States of America in big trouble if we abandon Israel? Because of the covenant God made with Abraham? That's why. And, and, and we have supported them. And as long as we are uh, just... I'm still in Ephesians 6, but I'm going <laughs> to just... Let me just show you something real quick. Let me just show you something. Because, see, this helps you when you, when you uh, watch the news, and I hope you watch it briefly. You know, I've gotten to the point, if I watch it, I watch it briefly with the Bible in the hand and a remote in the other. It's about all you can do. If you look at Genesis 12, and you look at the covenant God made with Abraham, one of the things that he said to Abraham in verse 3, he says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And we're still in it to this day. Back to Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil... Uh, No, no, I skipped. Uh, Against the world forces is darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day. You say, well, Steve, we've been working that verse. Yeah, we have. We talked about the evil day. We talked about... um, standing firm. But there's something else in that verse we've got to hit. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. You know what we haven't dealt with? Just having done everything. You say, my gosh, man, what are you going to do? You're, just, you're, you're crossing the T's and dotting the I's here. Yeah, because it's all important. There's not a wasted word in here. Um, Take up the, therefore, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? Because we're in war. That you will be able to resist in the evil day. We're in an evil day, are we not? Let me tell you something. We are robbing children of their innocence. We, we are exposing them to things they are not emotionally prepared to handle. They can't handle it. They can't absorb it. They are being hammered by the culture. You've got little girls that are, we've got texting, that is sexting. We've got, it's just, it's, it's an all-out invasion. It's an all-out assault. It's been going on for a long time. It used to be that every man's home was his castle. But with the invention of first radio, and then when television came in, Is it not interesting that with television, a very, very small group of individuals make decisions about content on television that goes into every home in a nation and influences? Is it not? And for some reason, I've had the impression they don't spend a lot of time in the Word of God. So the very thing you're trying to establish, they are attempting to undermine 24-7 under your nose. Now, once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But we're in a battle, are we not? Yeah. I, I... as I took my seat Sunday at the Second Service, I got in as Chuck was praying, because I had to park in Norman, Oklahoma. Yeah. And I had to wait for the shuttle. But I sat down, and Mary said, did you hear his remarks before he prayed? And I said, no. I said, what did he say? And she said, he said things are going to get worse and worse. But yeah. He said, it's coming to our country. Yeah, We don't make predictions around here. Well, that's not a prediction. That's just biblical, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, life through the lens of the Bible, that absolutely sinks. We're living in the evil day. And you're raising kids in the evil day. Now, Now, note this. Take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And watch this. And having done everything to stand firm. Three times it says stand firm. But right in the middle of it says, and having done everything to stand firm. What does that mean, having done everything? Well, there's a Greek scholar named Cleon Rogers. How'd you like to have that name? And he had the hubris to name his son after him. So, not only do you have Cleon Rogers, you've got Cleon Rogers Jr. And they're both Greek scholars and they know their stuff. Listen to what they have to say about that word that we translate having done everything. They say this although the word may mean to carry to victory, it here means not only having made all necessary preparations, but indicates having done everything which the crisis demands in order to quell the foe and maintain position. Let me read that again. It means here not only having made all necessary preparations. Before we hit Normandy, were there preparations made? Oh, my gosh. Biggest assault force in the history of the world. And we're doing all kind of faint moves, and they're pulling Patton in, open you know, what are they doing with Patton, because surely he's, and you know, Hitler's thinking this, and Eisenhower, and they got counterintelligence, and they got agents in London, and all this stuff's going on, but they're trying to make the preparations without the Germans finding out what's going on. And you do the best that you can do. And and the the massive planning, the the massive um, um, logistics, coordination, Weather issues, supply lines, not knowing if the enemy was going to be waiting or if the enemy was going to take the faint move. Not knowing, but doing the best preparation that was possible. So with that in mind, listen to the definition again. It means here not only making all necessary preparations, but indicates having done everything which the crisis demands in order to quell the foe and maintain position. So when it says, put on the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm, what does it mean to stand firm? It means to, to stand at your assigned uh, post of, of guarding, of being the watchman, or it means to hold your position on a battlefield that you have been assigned. Things are in flux on a battlefield. I, the reason I brought up Brigadier General, Ted Roosevelt is that when he was hobbling on Utah Beach with his cane and directing traffic and directing young men and making jokes as the bullets were flying, I want to say to you, he was an example of this. There had been all kinds of preparations, but you see it's in flux because they hit the beach and they're a mile down the beach where they should have been. So it's got to be an adjustment. He's got to get the two Uh, Brigades together, he's got to do, and someone's got to direct, and someone's got to inspire, and somebody's got to lead. What was he doing? He was standing firm. Had preparations been made? Yes, but adjustments had to to be made even as the battle was taking place. Even as the crisis demanded certain things in order to quell the foe and maintain position. Now, I want to say this to you. This is no light hearted stuff when it says to us as Christian men, when we are told, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day, know this: because you love Christ because you 're following christ there 's an X on you. you wear the uniform of Christ, therefore you are hated by the enemy, He hates Christ, he hates the purposes of God, he hates the plan of God, you are a part of that. Therefore, he hates you and will do everything he can do to neutralize you, to wound you, to make you ineffective in battle. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Here's what I'm trying to say. You can't do this and be half-hearted. You You can't go in the battle, putting on the full armor of God, standing firm. See when when the Vietnam deal. What what a quagmire that was! The guys that served over there, God bless them. They didn't have the support of the country. The uh, the leadership was divided. There wasn't clarity there wasn't a clear mission, uh, it would waver and waver, and yeah, you guys and all, you know, some of us lived through it. Came home, were, were loathed, spat upon, persecuted, it, beyond belief. Um, that's not how you fight a war. If you're going to fight a war, you go in to win and kill and defeat the enemy. That's what war is about. There are three things that are required to pull off what's in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Watch this. And having done everything, to stand firm. It says, having done everything, there are three things that are required. Number one, it requires the mind. Number two, it requires the heart. Number three, it requires the will. Flip over with me, if you would, to Romans chapter... Six actually uh, pick up Romans three twenty three. We'll do a quick uh, perusal of the gospel. Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at Romans one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, what, what is the gospel? The gospel is that You can't do enough good works on your own. You can't ever earn salvation. Uh, At the end of your life, God doesn't put your good works in a scale and your bad works, and hopefully the good works outweigh the bad. It's not going to happen like that. Uh, Because the bad is, uh, let me tell you, that's going (laughs) to, you're screwed. (laughs) And so am I. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 623 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus went to the cross and paid for my sin, died for my sin, went to the cross as my substitute. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf and on your behalf. Jesus died in our place. And the way that we find ourselves having peace with God and the wrath of God not being put on me, which I deserve, the wrath of God was put on Jesus. He paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's the gospel. And I call out to Christ. If you read Romans 10, uh, Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Christianity is Christ. Jesus went to the cross as my substitute. I believe and I trust in Jesus alone. Not in my works. I trust in Jesus Jesus is my righteousness. I trust in Him. He is He is He is the one who is the Savior. Five one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and when I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, there is a legal transaction that takes place. I am justified in the eyes of God because I have trusted in His Son, and my sin is not held against me anymore. I am justified in the eyes of God. The old term justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Because Jesus paid for all my sin, past, present, and future. You say, oh, don't say that because if you took... Wait a minute, all my sins have been paid for, past, present, and future? Well, don't say that because people will go out and live like hell. No, they won't. Look at Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, am I to stomp on the grace of God? When you understand the grace of God, you don't go out and live like hell. You try to live in thanksgiving for what he has done for you. If you go out and live in just sheer license and do whatever, you haven't grasped the gospel. You haven't really gotten it. There's no gratitude. There's no thankfulness. I had someone ask me recently, a a friend has had a series of tragedies. They say they know Christ. They've just had a tragedy, 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 and they said, I'm thinking about taking my own life. And the gentleman said, well, you can't do that. Why not? Where does it say in the Bible you can't do that? And he said, where does it say in the Bible that you can't do that? I said, well, it says thou shalt not murder. Period. That means you don't murder others, and that means you don't murder yourself. You don't have the right to take your own life. Well, but see, if, I, if it's all forgiven, I could just go ahead and sin and do whatever I want. No. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. No. Back to 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I tell you what, I love how Scripture fits with all other scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Three times last week, we saw the phrase in Ephesians 6, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Now watch this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained in our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's the grace of God. I stand in the grace of God. Through Christ, I am a recipient of the grace of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important to know. By the way, we're going to hit our first piece of armor tonight. About 11.30, I'm going to get to it. <laughs> but i got to set it up. Okay? Because you ha- having done everything to stand, you got to do some things to stand. Hold on to that verse, and then go to Romans 6, verse... Let's look at 12. We're going to look at a few verses tonight. Now, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that when we come to know Christ, our sins are forgiven, and because of that, we've been justified. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says... Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, when you come to Christ and you ask Christ into your life, here's the great thing that happens you'll never be tempted to sin again, and you'll never sin again. Isn't that great news? Sorry, that's not how it works. Say, so, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. Yeah, John says if you say that you have no sin, you make God to be a liar. We're still sinners. Now, we've been saved by grace, but see, here's the difference. When you work through Romans, before we come to know Christ, sin is a giant in our life that owns us and dominates us and uh, is our master. But when Christ comes into our life, what happens? That giant of sin becomes an emaciated, withered, old man in a wheelchair who's got an IV in his arm and breathing tubes in his nose. That giant has become an emaciated, weak, sick old man. That's sin. Now here's the deal of the Christian life. That old man is still around, but every day, here's the deal. Here's Here's the deal you've got to deal with every day in your life after Christ comes into your life. There's that old man. He's hanging around. He's lurking. You see him. He's there. You never feed him. Never. But the temptation is always to feed him. It's always to slip him some Oreos under the table. It's always to give you a liter of water. See, you want to keep starving sin. See, it says in um, 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. A king, a giant, reigns. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Now go to verse 17. Now here's what I'm going to tie in with Ephesians 6. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, you said, no, wait a minute, Steve. This is, I'm getting a little confused here. Because, Steve, look at I still struggle with sin. Well, join the club. I right, jump over to Romans 7. See, if you're feeling bad about the fact you struggle with sin, you say, yeah, but I'm not dead to sin. It says, consider yourself dead to sin. Yeah, but Steve, I still struggle. Man, I struggle deeply. If you only knew how deeply I struggle. Nobody else in this room struggles like I do. Oh yeah. Watch this, seven, uh, chapter seven, verse fifteen. Here's the apostle Paul speaking. He says, "For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate." Sound familiar? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Sin, sin still lives within you, even as a Christian. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For, good, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Sound familiar? Sure it does. Why? Because we're in process. Yeah, but you said I was justified. You are justified. Before God, legally, you were justified. It's just as though you've never sinned. But we're now walking day by day. That's called sanctification. See, now I'm living day by day until I get to heaven, and I'm in spiritual battle every day until I die or until Christ returns, and I go to heaven. I'm battling sin. Um, And so are you. Uh, Verse 20, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present within me. Yes, it is, and you're going to have to battle it every day of your life. (sighs) What a deal, huh? This is a hard deal. This is a tough battle. It's a 24-7 battle. never ends. So here's my question. Having therefore done everything, stand firm. What does it take to, what does it take to fight this battle? Um, I want to go back to 6.17. If, if, I, if, if I'm not making any sense, let me land the plane right here. In order to stand firm and fight this battle, having done everything, it's going to require the mind, the heart, and the will. And those three things are in chapter 6, verse 17. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that he believed that a definition of a Christian is found in 617. Watch this. But thanks to God, that though you were slaves of sin, that's what we were before Christ came into our lives. We were slaves of sin. Now watch this. You became obedient. Now, if you've ever had children, obedience is an issue. Now, most of us, when we have a firstborn, that firstborn comes out of, the, out of the womb with what we call a strong will. Firstborn children tend to be strong-willed children. James Dobson wrote a book called The Strong-Willed Child. Now every once in a while, a firstborn child will not be strong-willed. They will be what is known as a compliant child. Normally, the compliant child is the second child. Not always. If, if it works out for you that your firstborn is not strong-willed, but rather compliant. What's a compliant child? They want to please. A compliant child wants to please, and when you say do this, they're compliant, and they do it. They bend their will to yours, and what happens is they are very, very easy to raise in the early years. And you begin to think, this is no big deal. You know, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at this. I say don't do that, and they don't do it. Why? they got a soft will. They have a compliant will. If you've got a firstborn who's compliant, you will begin to deal with pride issues about what a gifted, knowledgeable father and parent you are because your child does exactly what you want them to do. The pride will end upon the arrival of your second-born child, who inevitably will be a strong-willed child who you will rename son of Satan. (laughs) Now, normally, the strong-willed is the first one. But if you get a compliant one the first time around, the second one is going to... You're going to to be crying. You're going to be on your knees crying, begging God for mercy and help. Where did this kid come from? Why? Because they will not obey. They absolutely will not obey. And on the tiniest, most irrelevant issue, they will fight you tooth and nail. Every waking moment is a war. Every waking moment is a battle, and you cannot let the strong-willed child win, because if you let them win, they will begin to think the whole world revolves around them, and they will never listen or obey anyone in authority for the rest of their lives, which you know will destroy their lives, and they better learn it early, and they better learn it young But they are relentless. Why? They will not obey. When a child will not obey, it's an issue of, watch this, it's an issue of the will. Now, what does this say? You were slaves of sin, that's before you came to Christ. But you became, you became what? Obedient. That's the will. In this passage, you're gonna see the will, you're gonna see the heart, and you're gonna see the mind. And all must be utilized to stand firm and put on the armor and fight the battle. You can't go into battle half-hearted. That's why Lloyd-Jones says, this is a definition of a Christian. You became obedient, your, your will was yielded. Your will became soft to God. By the way, it became soft because of his working by his spirit in your heart. Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks God, there is no one who does good. God has looked over all the sons of men, there's no one who seeks him. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of her skin? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Our wills are against God we are self-willed individuals. Even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God. We don't want to do it. You know what atheism is? Atheism is a very poor cover-up of a refusal to acknowledge His authority in existence because you would have to bow your will. That's what it is. So the will is always involved. You see? You became obedient. The most spiritual thing you can do in the Christian life is not speak in tongues, they'll tell you that. The most spiritual thing you can do is not uh, fall over backwards at some meeting with some guy with weird hair. <laughs> you know, there's certain things, oh, that's real spiritual. That's real sp- oh, isn't that spiritual? Isn't that spiritual? Spirituality is obedience. You never trumpet. You obey the word of God. Don't you love it when your kids obey you? Yeah. Sure you do. John said, I have never no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Okay. Watch this. You became obedient from the heart. There's the heart. The heart's the seat of everything. Christianity is all about the heart. You shall, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love your God with all your heart. David was a man after God's own heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Christianity is always about the heart. Always. The heart is you. It, it's, it speaks of, 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 of everything that is you. I, I've, I've used this many times. When my grandpa... Carrar passed away, and I saw him in the open casket, and I was seven years old. I looked in there, and, I thought, and my first thought was, he's not there. I saw his body, but he wasn't in there. There was no heart. There was no personality. Put your heart into it. You see? When Ted Roosevelt was on Utah Beach with that cane and pointing those guys, and bullets are flying, and he's making jokes, and his heart was in it. Wasn't it? So those guys saw him and those 18, 19-year-old kids, you know, that, that landing craft hits and that ramp comes down, and, you know, they're just, I mean, how would you feel? Were they cowering in the back and going, I want my mommy? No, because they saw this, this old codger standing out there, you know. Come on, guys. Hey, come on. You'll be all right. Well, That was close. Come on. What Churchill say? There's nothing quite as invigorating as being shot out without result. Well, that old codger can be out there. guy. Okay, I'll go. What the heck? Because his heart was in it. So the will came with it. Watch this. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. Teaching. Teaching what? Jesus said in John 8, 31... I know the verse. I didn't have my storage shot this week. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John 17, 17. Jesus prayed for his disciples. And for those who had come to know him, he said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Psalm 119. What is it? 160? It says, the sum of thy word is truth. Now keep your finger in Romans 6. Flip over to Ephesians 6. I want to show you something. First piece of armor. This is interesting. We're in 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Having done everything, what do you mean having done everything? Mind, heart, will. You were obedient from the heart to the teaching. Because, you see, teaching is to the mind. Truth is presented to the mind. It's mind, heart, will. It's It's the whole fiber of your life. You were committed, uh, having done everything, to stand firm. Now watch 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Or the ESG says, um, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first piece of armor is a belt. They would wear tunics in those days. The Roman soldiers, when they were going into battle, they would pull up the tunic, put the belt around it, strap it up tight, so the tunic wouldn't get in their way. They could easily access the sword, which was in a sheath attached to the belt. The belt was central. You get your belt wrong, you're going to be messed up in battle because you're dropping your belt, your tunic flies off, you got a piece of armor, which is uh, just above the belt. If that, if that belt drops, you are exposed in the place in battle. You don't want to be exposed. The belt was central. And what kind of belt is this? What is the central piece of equipment in the Christian battle? Truth. Truth. What was the first thing that Satan said to the woman in the garden? He said, you go ahead and eat. She said, God said, if we eat, we'll die. And he said, you shall not die. He attacked the truth of God. He's been doing it ever since. So this is why we have all this this stuff going on with uh, the evangelical church departing from truth. Mentioned this last week or the week before, pastor in Michigan, Rob Bell, Bray Winsome, a uh, young guy, he's about 40. You remember when 40 was old? <laughs> now, 40 is young. Anyway, funny how that works, but um, uh, you know, very knowledgeable, creative, uh, creative communicator, all that. Uh, has come out with a book called Love Wins, and basically, when you read the book and when he's interviewed, you can't get a straight answer from the guy. He's very nuanced, he's very foggy, he will not give you a straight shot answer. But basically, he says, in the end, love wins. Well, what do you mean? Well, is there really a hell, and do people really live it forever? And he goes, well, in the end, love wins. And then they, you know, they interview him and ask him questions. And, and then he, I, this week, I read where he was defending himself, that he really is an evangelical Bible-believing Christian. Well, you know, not according to your book, you're not. And then the president of Fuller Seminary comes out this week defending him because Rob Bell went to Fuller Seminary. And in his article, the president of Fuller Seminary, a school which departed from the Word of God a long time ago, when they said the Word of God is no longer inerrant, when they were established by Charles Fuller, they believed in the inerrancy of the Word of God. But in 62, I think it was, they changed their doctrinal statement to remove inerrancy from it. The four leading professors resigned in protest. And then it's just dominoes from then on. So the president of Fuller defends Rob Bell. And in his letter, in his statement, he said, so, so those of you who say that he doesn't have it exactly right, well, then you're saying if Mother Teresa doesn't quite have a, understand justification by faith, that she's not in heaven? Shame on you. No, shame on you. What are you saying? That if someone doesn't embrace Christ alone because they did all kinds of good works in India That's going to get them into heaven. That's not the gospel And who are you to say it is? You have departed from the faith If that's what you're saying And if you're saying it at least be a man and come out and say it and don't be so nuanced Tell me straight out where you stand Is that what you hold to? Well, then you hold the works You're a judaizer Once again, this is why I no longer pastor churches. <laughs> See, Chuck is so much more balanced, isn't he? But he, but he would say the same I mean, thing. You know, he out, he he throws them high and inside, doesn't he? Sure, he does. It's an attack on truth. Fuller Seminary dropped the belt of truth a long time ago. On everything? No, not on everything. problem is you started on one, you got a problem. Uh, Fasten on the belt of truth. The belt of truth is critical. And can I say this to you guys? The enemy is always going to come after the truth. He's going to attack the truth. Uh, the Bible has always been attacked. You had German higher criticism... Uh, and, And by the way, when you look at the history of Fuller Seminary, the reason that they departed from inerrancy is that the son of the founder of Fuller Seminary went off to Germany, got influenced by the higher criticism movement that started in Germany, came back, said we need to change this, and they changed it. And a lot of those men, when you read those German higher critics and the documentary hypothesis and all that kind of stuff, they don't know Christ. They're not believers. They are not submitted to Christ. They've not been born again. They're not regenerated. They're just academics. You see? But it's an attack on truth. Uh, What is the truth? Put on the belt of truth. It's uh, the... Kent Hughes made a great point. He said, when you read the early commentators up until Calvin, they say it's the objective truth, the revealed word of God, and that's true. It's uh, all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, It's objective truth. Um, It's the word of God. It it is uh, also In 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all scripture is uh, inspired by God, the, the, the literal uh, translation is all Scripture is God breathed. God didn't breathe it in. He, he did this. He, he breathed it out. So it's sourced in God. If it's sourced in God, it has to be pure. It can't be tainted if it's sourced in God. Because God cannot lie, can he? And God doesn't deceive. Okay. Uh, Then after Calvin some of the commentators said well, it's not only objective truth But it's truth that you understand and you live out. They're both right because we're not just to be hearers of the word But we are to be doers Of the word see Satan will attack truth You take off the belt of truth if you're a man that will teach a truth But then take off the belt when you get out of the pulpit and you go live like hell And then those who watch you, your children and others that are close to you, say, I don't believe that gospel because of the way he lives. Does that make sense? Sure it does. The gospel, the truth of God, is to be applied to our lives. Now, watch how the enemy... I want to give you just two examples of how the enemy will attack you when it comes to the belt of truth. Here's number one. He will attack your present performance. What I mean by that is, when I say he will attack your present performance, something will happen, you will fall short of the glory of God, and you will say to yourself, why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep... You'll find yourself in a Roman 7 situation. I say I won't do this again, I ask God for forgiveness, and I do it, and I do it, and I do it again, and I do it again. I can't keep coming back to God. Yet you can. Yes, you can. You can keep coming back to God. So why can I keep coming back to God? Because of the truth of God. You see, when, when you start condemning yourself, you've taken off the belt of truth. Jesus is our defense attorney. Jesus is our advocate. Yes, I'm a sinner. Well, John Newton said it all the time. I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. Sin still dwells within me. You see, so I still struggle with sin. Do, do, have, have I beat sin? No, no. It, sometimes it beats me, and I get so discouraged, and I think, and I get so condemned. That's the enemy condemning you. And when, when you are condemned, you've got to put on the belt of truth. First uh, John 1 9, if we confess our sins, what you just did, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth. You put on the belt of truth. Uh, Romans 5 the love of God has been poured out in our hearts the love of God the forgiveness of God is like Niagara It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming It just keeps coming and Satan will come along and he'll try to get you to take off that belt and say no You're worthless. You never were a Christian. You don't know Christ. You were never saved. He'll just condemn 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 And what do you have to do you got to ratchet up the belt to truth and stand on the truth? Am I making any sense? You see? Here's number two. He will attack your persistent pressure. Now, what does that mean? Let me say it again. He will attack your persistent pressure. What I mean by that is that the pressure that you experience on a daily basis. David Jeremiah, who many of you have read his books... Here is teaching. Uh, his son is a uh, professional football scout. And so, in his, uh, one of his articles, he writes this. He got it from his son. Uh, and this little article is called Performance Under Pressure. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 9, where Paul says, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. Jeremiah writes this, pro football fans talk about DVOA, which is defense-adjusted value over average. I don't talk about that personally, do you? (laughs) But see, the scouts do and the coaches do. Defense-adjusted value over average is DVOA. They talk about DVOA for teams and individual players. The quarterback with the best DVOA ranking for 2009 was Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers. That means he was the most productive under pressure of all quarterbacks in the NFL. Then he writes this, pressure in sports is temporary, pressure in life is continual. Yes, it is. And here's what happens. Satan will attack you in the area of your persistent pressure. And he will cause you to be... Is your pressure financial? You can't find a job, he will attack you with worry and anxiety that how am I going to make it? I've got enough to get through Thursday, how am I going to make it on Friday? He will attack you there. And it will he will never go away. In your area you you got a marriage it's not what you had hoped it would be and it's just worse than you ever thought. He will attack you there. Worry, anxiety, it'll be this way for the rest of my life. We'll never see any resolution, we'll never see any closure. He will attack you there. Is it a health issue? where you just can't seem to get back in the saddle, he will attack you there with discouragement and discouragements. I'll never be productive again. My life is meaningless. As as Churchill said when he was an old man, uh, how did he put this? He said to his daughter, my life is over, but it is not finished. He was an old man in his 80s, and he couldn't do anything, and he would sit out by that pond at Chartwell and watch the ducks, and he would say, my life is over, but it is not finished. If you've lost your health, that's how you feel. See, the enemy will attack you in that area of persistent pressure. Uh, it's anxiety and worry that he will produce in you that God will not come through for you, that God will not make a way for you, and that God will not ever deliver you, and, beca- and as a result, you fight hopelessness. This is what happens when someone takes their life who's a believer. They they have taken off the belt of truth. They listen to the lie of the enemy. The best thing that could happen would be to take my life. No, that's not correct. Put on the belt of truth. Well, God must be be condemning me because I'm suffering. Because I'm suffering. I'm suffering. You've got to put on the belt of truth. Jeremiah says something here. It's very interesting. He said, Jesus described the pruning process in the spiritual life that results in more fruit. Do you want to be fruitful in the Christian life? Do you want God to use you? Sure you do. Why else would you be here on a Wednesday night studying the Bible? You want to be used by God. Can I tell you how that's going to happen? Pressure. John 15. You under pressure? I'll just be honest with you. I had a couple days this week I tell you what, I was about ready to punt. Uh, I'm, I'm dead serious. I, mean, I, I was virgin on losing heart. I just was. And you know what, I of let happen. I kinda let the belt of truth go. And I, I and I began asking, what, what, why is this not going? On? Why, why is this just persistent? What, what, what am I doing wrong? What is this? What is? It? Well, I just. John 15, look at verse 2. Look at 1. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, have you ever borne fruit? Has God ever used you in the life of someone else? Sure, he has. Okay. Okay, so you've been fruitful. Now watch this. And every branch that bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Can I tell you something? That's not good news. <laughs> yeah, getting pruned hurts. So I got some roses down there by the, where it slants down there, towards the garage. My mom sent me a plant them, you know, turn the water on at night. Never think about them, and they grow. But the one thing I do, I'll go prune them. And last year was a pretty good year. Man, I mean, they were knocking off roses like crazy. So you know what I did at the right time? Because I listened to Neil Sperry. You know what I did? I got those shears, and I just went out there, and I started pruning those suckers. Now, if those rose bushes could talk, they might say something like this. Hey! <laughs> what, the, what are you doing? Hey, 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 that hurts, man. Knock that off. You got a Novocaine? You got any anesthesia on you? What are you doing to... to To be pruned is painful. What are you doing to me? Did I not give you what you wanted? Oh, yeah, you were unbelievable last year. Those roses were incredible. Well, then what the heck are you doing to me? Well, I want more roses. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. You want to be used by God? Can I give you just a tip? You're going to hurt. And there's going to be pressure. And it's going to be persistent. Not because he's against you, but because he's for you. When I was a young guy, I thought if I went to seminary, it'd qualify me for ministry. And if you're going to teach, you need to have some basics down. You know what I found out as I got older? Seminary degrees don't qualify you for ministry. You know what qualifies you for ministry? Suffering. Pruning. So if you're, if you're in the middle of being pruned and there's persistent pressure and you're worn out and you're exhausted, may I say to you, hitch you up your belt of truth. And remind yourself that he's not against you. His desire is to use you. And he knows exactly how much you can bear. And when he has accomplished what he needs to accomplish, the pressure will be relieved. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We have a father who doesn't always do things the way we want, but he does it the way that it should be done in order to use us, and in order to make us effective in spiritual battle. If you're hurting, it's because you're being effective. And he's got more in store for you to do. Let's pray. So Father, help us to throw ourselves, mind, heart, and will into this battle. We can't do this with just our minds. This is not an intellectual exercise. Uh, you want it to, and we just can't use our, our, our wills because it's a nice morality that is better than other systems. You want us. You want our lives. You want our hearts, our minds, our wills. You want it all. And just as that valiant man, Mr. Roosevelt, threw himself into the battle with everything he had and gave courage to others... May you encourage our hearts tonight that even as the battle is hot and the battle is furious and we are under tremendous pressure, that we would not step back, but that we would know that we are not in this by ourselves. The battle is not ours. As you said to Jehoshaphat, the battle is the Lord's. We believe that. We trust in it. Your eye is upon us. You will make a way, you will deliver. Encourage us with the word of God, we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.